from the studios of Postscript Media and Canary Media. We are about to close out the 2022 hurricane season, hopefully. A few weeks ago, we ran an episode about how poor planning has put Floridians in harm's way of stronger hurricanes, like Hurricane Ian. Before that, we had Canary journalist Maria Gallucci on the show to talk about the costs of Hurricane Fiona on Puerto Rico's grid. So we've been talking about the destruction of these storms and uh, how it's impacting communities and the energy system. There's a lot of places that through a combination of poor coastal planning and stronger hurricanes fueled by climate change, are going to be vulnerable to the impacts of storms in the coming years. It's only going to get worse. Hurricane after hurricane, the human and economic costs of climate change are increasing. So some places are starting to ask, instead of spending all this money on recovery, how can we protect people from hurricanes before they even happen? This week, producer Alexandria Hurst spoke to some folks who are asking exactly that question, and Alexandria is back on the show. Hey, Hey, Stephen. So I want to tell you a story about a seawall. It hasn't been built yet, but once it is, it'll be the biggest and most expensive civil engineering project in U.S. history. It's also going to be massive. You're going to be able to see it from space once it's built. And it's supposed to protect the country from what could be the worst environmental disaster in American history. Are you hooked yet? I am, and I'm a sucker for large engineering projects. So let's let's go into this. It all starts with this one guy. His name is Dr. Bill Merrill. He's an emeritus professor at Texas A&M University. And he's been an oceanographer since the 1970s and has spent a lot of the last two decades focused on hurricanes and coastal policy. But in 2008, Dr. Merrill lived through a hurricane that would end up changing the course of his life. When I came, it was soon after Rita. And if you remember, the Rita evacuation killed like 105 people. So uh, by the time it was time to evacuate, we were worried about getting on the road and being trapped like the Rita people were. So we stayed in a building I owned on the on the Strand, a four-story building. What did it look like in the aftermath? <laughs> well, my little grandson was with me, and I told him it's going to look like a like a river on the strand. And sure enough, it did. We had 13 feet of water there. So looking out the second floor window down on the uh, strand, you saw water coming in pretty soundly. It was uh, quite an event. Outside of Houston, Hurricane Ike isn't really a household name, not in the way that Katrina or Harvey are, but Ike did a lot of damage. Hurricane Ike was, at the time, the costliest hurricane in Texas history. Ike is not as well known because its worst impact was on Bolivar Peninsula, which is really sparsely populated. This is Kia Collier. She's a journalist for ProPublica and the Texas Tribune, and she's reported a lot on Ike and its aftermath. There's this really famous photo, or famous in the Houston area, I guess, of um, the single, a single house that was left standing on Bolivar after Ike, and the rest of them are, like, flattened. <laughs> um, it's pretty striking. Bolivar was swept clean. It was amazing over there. And, I mean, all the homes and everything were in uh, little pieces <laughs> of sticks on uh, Goat Island, which is an island behind Bolivar. Uh, it had been swept there. And uh, anybody who most everybody who tried to stay on the Bolivar died. The storm was devastating, and living through it changed something in Dr. Merrill. I remember during it, uh, there's some point in there, I turned to my wife and said, the Dutch wouldn't put up with this. 
So I've been to the Netherlands on a reporting trip, and I've seen this system of locks and levees they have to keep the water out. But just explain for us what he means when he says the Dutch wouldn't put up with this. Well, if you've been to the Netherlands, you probably know that 50% of the country is actually below sea level. And Dr. Merrill himself has visited the Netherlands a couple of times, and he also saw the massive levees that they've constructed to prevent regular flooding. I'd been over to the Netherlands and seen what they had done and kind of thought that it would work. And the experiences of the Dutch is that it, it does work. So within days of the hurricane, inspired by the flood protection in the Netherlands, Dr. Merrill started to sketch out a plan. So I had an old piece of paper and I sketched out uh, essentially the gates at, at Bolivar Roads and barriers on Galveston and uh, Bolivar and thought that that, that would, would work uh, just from a strategic point of view. This hastily sketched plan was for a coastal barrier. Inspired by the Dutch, Dr. Merrill's design was meant to protect the coast from another Ike-like hurricane. And he started to try to get other people on board. They thought it was just a radical idea, crazy. They said, don't you understand you can't stop a hurricane? Don't you understand that we live on a barrier island? You know, you can't protect it. I wrote uh, an article for the newspaper uh, about how I thought we ought to uh, try to protect the Houston-Galveston area from from storm surge. And uh, uh, it was a real flop. Nobody would publish it. But all truth goes through three phases. One, First, it's ridiculed. Second, it's violently opposed. And then finally, it's self-evident. But it took us 13 years to get to the self-evident stage. It was not accepted readily at, at first at all. Okay, so he's got this idea that was considered radical when proposed. But over the last 13 years, we have seen extreme weather increase, hurricanes intensify. What happens next? Why did this catch on? So for 13 years, Dr. Merrill slowly chipped away at his idea. He called it the Ike Dyke, named for the hurricane that inspired it. And slowly, it started to gain steam. Based on Dr. Merrill's original design, the Army Corps and the Texas General Land Office put together something called a feasibility study for a storm barrier. That study itself took years and years. And then it ended up in a plan that finally made its way to Congress as a part of the Water Resources and Development Act of 2022. That piece of legislation passed both the House and the Senate this summer. It's still waiting to go to Joe Biden's desk, but once it's fully authorized, then the hard part starts, construction. As it stands right now, it's a $31 billion project that's going to take at least 18 years to build. This is The Carbon Copy. I'm Stephen Lacey. I'm Alexandria Herr. And this week, we're going to hear from Alexandria about the Ike Dike. What will it take to protect coastal cities from a warming future? This is the trillion-dollar question, literally, that coastal cities across the country are dealing with. As the cost of living with hurricanes gets bigger and bigger, what can we build to protect ourselves? And how much are we willing to pay? All 
I want to take a brief moment to talk about the new season of the Big Switch podcast. We've been working on this for the last six months. We're so excited to bring it to you. Our production team at Latitude Media has been working for years with Dr. Melissa Lott and the team at Columbia University Center on Global Energy Policy uh, to make the Big Switch. It's a narrative show about how to rebuild our energy systems. And we are back with a five-part series exploring the supply chains behind lithium-ion batteries and the very complicated economic and political forces that come as batteries take over the world. So in this season, we break batteries apart, go to mining operations, manufacturing facilities, recycling plants, and talk to some of the most prominent experts about the pitfalls and promise of our expanding battery-based energy economy. And you'll hear the trailer a bit later in the show. So if this sounds like something you want to listen to, find The Big Switch anywhere you get your podcasts. So something that you should know about Hurricane Ike and also why the Ike Dike is so important is that as bad as Hurricane Ike was, it could have been much, much worse. Like how bad are we talking? I'm talking worst environmental disaster in American history bad. Kia Collier reported a Peabody award-winning story in 2016 for ProPublica and the Texas Tribune about exactly what Ike could have looked like if it had hit the coast in just a slightly different location. In this piece, you wrote, Houston's perfect storm is coming. It's not a matter of if, but of when. Could you tell me a little bit about that? What what does that mean when you say the perfect storm? Scientists say that if Houston's perfect storm were to hit, um, it would be the worst environmental disaster in U.S. history um, and potentially the worst economic disaster in U.S. history. So there's this worst-case scenario point on the coast. If a hurricane of, you know, even a Category 2 or 3 were to hit, it would do a ton of damage. Um, and that's uh, it's partly because of geography or, you know, Galveston. I mean, imagine, like, two barrier islands with an opening in between them, and then there's a big bay behind it, Galveston Bay, that's extremely shallow. And so if a hurricane hit at the southern end of Galveston Island, it would essentially fling a ton of storm surge in between the barrier islands and over them into Galveston Bay, which is super shallow. And then that would, you know, in turn flood areas around it. It would, one of the biggest concerns is flooding along the Houston Ship Channel, which is, you know, home to uh, major refineries, um, a petrochemical complex, um, and it would just have really devastating consequences. So Dr. Jim Blackburn is the co-director of the Severe Storm Prediction, Education, and Evacuation from Disaster Center. Kind of a mouthful. It's also known as SPEED. And that's one of the groups that has conducted this modeling. Here he is talking about what they found. Early on, we linked up with Dr. Clint Dawson from the University of Texas. And Clint is able to simulate hurricanes using the University of Texas at Austin supercomputer. And we found the worst case pathway for a storm, which is about uh, 40 miles, 50 miles south down the coast from where um, Ike came in. Uh, Our worst case scenario is down around Freeport, uh, the south end of Galveston Island, And we uh, basically use that as a place for our uh, hypothetical storms to come in. And then we've uh, simulated uh, category, uh, big category three, low category four storms. We've done category five storms. 
we've done storms with and without protection. What I can tell you is the Houston Ship Channel, which, is, like I say, is a huge industrial complex, is incredibly vulnerable to these storms. The Houston Ship Channel is a big part of the reason why this storm would be so disastrous if it hit. It's home to the port of Houston, which is the largest container port on the Gulf. It generates about $800 billion in economic value every year. And it's a hub for refining, imports and exports of petroleum, and petroleum products, basically an energy corridor. The Houston area uh, produces a huge share of the nation's um, jet fuel, gasoline, kind of you name it. Um, it would it, it would impact the supply chain um, to a degree that's like hard to measure. <laughs> uh, when we were reporting on it, you know, I was talking to supply chain people and, you know, trying to get an idea of, you know, how things work and what the exact impact would be, you know, quantifying it. And people would just get overwhelmed and think, I mean, it would be, you know, plastics. I mean, of course, you know, with natural gas and certain types of petrochemical um, petroleum products, those go into making plastic and all kinds of consumer products in addition to gasoline, you know, and fuel. Um, so it's just hard to imagine how economically devastating it would be. But we know that it would cause extreme supply chain disruptions, you know, would impact the airline industry, the transportation industry in general. I feel like this year has been a lesson for all of us in supply shocks and what that does to prices. In the wake of Russia's war on Ukraine, we saw these crazy spikes in energy prices and commodity prices. And this is the kind of shock that can ripple across entire countries or the entire world. Exactly. It's like a domino effect. And it would also be horrible for the communities that would be in the path of the storm because all of the petrochemical and shipping infrastructure would suddenly become a huge hazard. There's about, oh, I think around 4,500 storage tanks that are filled with oil and hazardous material. And about 2,200 of them would be flooded with a 24-foot surge. So we're talking about water surrounding these tanks and then rising beside it. And these tanks are really not designed for rising water. They're designed for uh, horizontal wind shear, but they're not designed for, uh, if you will, prevention of flotation. We also have a huge number of containers that are stored all around the Houston Ship Channel. We have two very large container ports, and those containers float, and they become a bit like battering rams. So our, our, our real worry is these tanks getting ruptured, being popped off of their foundations, um, they would go in with the incoming surge, and so that goes all the way into downtown Houston. It goes into east side uh, low-lying neighborhoods, of which there's a number, primarily minority communities in that part of Houston. And then it'll come back out, and it will not necessarily leave the bay. It will get distributed around Galveston Bay, and will end up in the marshes, it'll end up in the sediments, it'll end up basically all over the Galveston Bay system. That is what we're talking about as being potentially the worst environmental disaster in United States history. It's not so much the size. Um, the Deepwater Horizon was about 210 million gallons of oil. This would be about 100 million gallons of oil and hazardous substances. So it's about half the size of the Deepwater Horizon. But that would all happen at one time. 
It would not happen over a period of weeks or months. It would be immediate, and it would basically be confined within the bay because all of the water going in and out of the bay has to go through Bolivar Roads Pass. And so a lot of that will just, a lot of that material would just get kind of hung up in the wetlands, hung up in the bay. Yeah, I am uh, sufficiently freaked out. And what's freaking me out is this potential situation and the fact that there's probably other communities around the world that have these same kind of hazards. I mean, this is, this is wild. It's like this horrible recipe that you get when you mix unprotected petrochemical infrastructure with like storm hazard with just a bunch of vulnerable communities in harm's way. And I suppose this is where the Ike Dyke comes in. Yes, exactly. Enter the Ike Dyke. Dr. Merrill says that it's designed to help prevent exactly this scenario. It's designed to stop the surge at, at, at the coast, which are protecting the entire Houston Galveston area, including the ship channel, all, all the petrochemical everything. So you're protecting the entire infrastructure, the petrochemical inf- infrastructure here, the the human infrastructure, the homes. Uh, so it's really designed to protect the region. Okay, so this thing is going to protect a lot of critical infrastructure, a lot of land. What is it going to look like? I will let Dr. Merrill himself paint you a picture. It's going to be a 60-plus um, mile-long mile uh, structure. A lot of the, a lot of it will look totally natural. We'll either have fortified dunes or the course proposed to put natural dunes in. But then the gates will be the thing that will really stand out. Uh, we have we have the Houston Chip Channel and the Galveston Chip Channel and Texas City Chip Channel to worry about. So we're going to have a lot of traffic through that. So we have to have those gates right. Uh, right now, the core has two sets of gates, big swinging gates. In in and out, those gates you'll be able to see from space. So the Army Corps plan that I mentioned earlier that was approved this year in the House and the Senate has some modifications from Dr. Merrill's original plan, but he says that the core of it is basically the same as that first sketch that he drew after the hurricane. And he got a lot of his inspiration for the design from his visits to the Netherlands. I went over there in 2009. Ike was in 2008. And it was probably in the midst of that uh, face, which I was telling the ridicule face. So I I went over to the Netherlands on a cold trip. I didn't know anyone who worked on flooding at the time, but I knew the institutions. So I went to the institutions and gave a talk on the Ike Dyke and was very warmly received. So for anyone who's actually gone to the Netherlands and see how their system of keeping water out works knows that it's critical, and we're probably going to have to see more engineering feats like that in communities around the world. But I can understand why here in the U.S. that might seem crazy. So when he first proposed this project, people thought it was unrealistic. And I'm just curious, how did he start changing their minds? Well, the Netherlands helped with that part, too. So Dr. Merrill remembers seeing this thing called the Rotterdam Gates, and it's kind of like the crown jewel of the Dutch flood protection system. It's also part of the inspiration for the Ike Dyke. I was actually there in 2009 as well when I was on my reporting trip, and I was totally blown away by the scale of these gates as they closed. And I thought, oh my goodness, they're keeping a lot of water out of this country. The Rotterdam Gates are the side, both gates are the size of the Eiffel Tower on its side to give you, it's a, they're monsters. They're very impressive. We were able to go over when they do their test closure. They do a test closure once a, uh, 
a, a year. And I remember there's a lot of swans around there and that sort of stuff. And when they close the gates, the swans don't even move. It, it's that quiet. Wow. Yeah, and so it's really... It's really something to to see that there a lot of Dutch show up for the for the gate closing. They stand up on a hill, and then when the gates close, they politely collapse. <laughs> In Texas, we'd be screaming and drinking beer, and <laughs> thing. But it's a it's, it does show the cultural differences. We encouraged uh, people from the Houston Galveston area to travel with us to the Netherlands when we went, and hundreds did. They actually saw what was over there. Do you remember from any of those early trips when you brought people with you from Houston Galveston area to the Netherlands? Remember anyone that you brought with you having like an aha moment of like, wow, like that we could have this? Almost everybody did. I remember taking a person from the Corps who had uh, doubted that you could do it. And when they saw it in the Netherlands, they turned to me and said, you know, you, you, you really can build these things. <laughs> this big. I mean, these are monstrous things. It's big engineering. It's not particularly hard engineering, but it is big engineering. And uh, I remember that, and I remember a, a lot of aha moments. And uh, I think where that was really um, reinforced is when we got back, these were now the champions of the Ignite. Once you see it, it changes your attitude, you think, yeah, this this can work. I'm Dr. Melissa Lott, and I'm the host of The Big Switch, a show about how to rebuild our energy systems. Batteries are finding their way into everything, from cars and heavy equipment to the electric grid. But scaling up production to meet the demands of a net-zero economy is complicated, and it's contentious. If every country says we need to own the entire supply chain because we want all of those economic benefits, it's going to make the clean energy transition so much harder. In a new five-part series, we're digging into the global battery supply chain, from mining to manufacturing, and we're asking what gets mined, traded, and consumed on the road to decarbonization. If we think climate change is the existential threat facing our planet, we have to be having a broad conversation about where we want to get the minerals that build these products. Listen to The Big Switch from Columbia University's SEPA Center on Global Energy Policy, available on February 28th, wherever you get your podcasts. So the Ike Dyke, it's meant to protect the region from this catastrophic potential storm. The question I have in my mind is, is it going to be big enough and will it be built soon enough to avoid a catastrophe? Yeah, I mean, that's the fundamental question. And I asked Dr. Merrill about that. Can you tell me a little bit about what the worst case scenario storm could look like without the Ike Dyke in place and what the Ike Dyke protects once it is in place? Well, we want to design the Ike Dyke to have 100-year pr- protection from a storm you might expect every, every 100 years. Uh, you have a, there's always a cost trade-off as to how much protection any, that you can have. Uh, so our designs at A&M are 100-year protection. The cores are less than that. So there'll be a debate on exactly the level of protection needed. Now, if you have a storm a, a bigger than that, like one you might see over 500 years, you'd have damage, but it would be much less. So you, 
you'll have a disaster, but you won't have a catastrophe. Wait, wait, we need to pause on this. So, so the Army Corps version of the Ike Dyke wouldn't even protect against a once in 100 year storm. I mean, in like the last five years, we've seen multiple 100 year storms hitting Florida. That just doesn't make sense. That's what Dr. Merrill says. And I reached out to the court to ask them about this project, but their spokesperson said they can't grant any interviews about the project until it's fully authorized. But Dr. Merrill says that their version of the plan is basically weakened from the protection in his original design. I think the Army Corps has tried to design it to be very environmentally friendly, but at the cost of protection. And I think there's a point where you say, you know, we want to be... environmentally friendly, but we can have protection. My favorite example is the fortified dunes. They look just like regular dunes, but they can, af- they can protect you from a number of storms. The Army Corps' natural dunes would only protect you for um, to about an Ike-like storm, nothing stronger. So uh, they would be wiped out. And then if another storm comes, and we've had up to three storms in a, a season, come near us so you know we could we could be hit again and again you'd uh, you'd, you wouldn't have any protection what level of protection do the dutch build to Ten thousand years oh my god why is there such a big difference because they want to protect their country and they are they're much more risk adverse than we are the uh, uh the upper part around rotterdam protected a ten thousand year storm the lower area, the more agricultural area, is protected to a 3,000-year storm. Oh so, so the area they think is not as important, they protect to 3,000 years. We're arguing to get up to 100-year protection. Does that frustrate you? Sure. How do I mean, you cope I, with I, it? I don't, I don't think we have good public policy here in the United States. I, re- I really don't. And I know, I know things don't, don't change quickly, but they do change. And if we keep the right direction of change, I think we can get to good public policy here. But right now, we're just kind of floundering around on the public policy issue. What would 10,000-year protection look like? Like that, Do you think that will even be politically feasible in, in the United States one day? I, I doubt it. You know, I'm, I'm not sure that's a, a level of protection that we need. I think if you look at where the big cost-benefit is and level of protection for Houston— and you do some uh, modeling that the Dutch do, and we haven't done this carefully. We've done it kind of back of the envelope sort of thing. You end up getting about a thousand year protection. It's probably your best cost benefit. There's different cost benefits for different levels of protection. Now that's not a hard number, but approximately something like a thousand years would be a reasonable level of protection for Houston Gallison. And do you think? We'll be able to get there politically one day? Not in my lifetime would be my, my guess. I just think it's going to, that would cost too much money. But I think what you're going to see is as sea level rises, the threats become worse and worse. We're going to have enough trouble just keeping that 100 year protection. I mean, we're going to have to modify the Ike Dike over the next years to keep the same level of protection we would have now if, if we had it in place. Well, this uh, doesn't sound super promising. I mean, my, my freak-out level hasn't really been reduced. I mean, it's good to see that U.S. engineers are grappling with this concept, but it's yet more evidence that here in America, we're really not willing to pay for 
resilience and adaptation efforts. I mean, I think it's going to take something really catastrophic for us to truly grapple with the scope of the infrastructure we need to build to protect ourselves. And this is yet more evidence that we're not yet quite willing to pay. That's what kept blowing my mind about this conversation, this idea that like risk in a way is so cultural and political. Like in this country, we've just become accustomed to this idea that we have to endure hurricanes and then pay so much money to bounce back over and over and over again. But there is another way we could build to protect ourselves. But I do have one thing that might reduce your freakout level. I don't know if you remember Jim Blackburn from the top of the show. I do, the speed guy. Yes, speed. Um, well, his group has actually come up with a second plan, one that would complement the Ike Dyke to add another layer of protection. The Dutch emphasize multiple lines of defense. And I think that's the key here is Bill Merrill, the, um, the Ike Dyke, and then the Corps of Engineers picked up that solution. And I think they call it the coastal spine or the coastal barrier at this time. And that's really the first line of defense right on the coastline, you know, putting up a, if you will, a wall along the coastline. What we are working on is the second line of defense within the bay system. Galveston Bay Park Plan will be built by widening the ship channel, taking that dredge material, constructing a 25-foot levee, and then using the uh, area behind the um, the dike itself for disposal of dredge material, which will be converted into, we, we hope, a state park. I know that you guys, Speed, has done some modeling of the impacts of a Category 5, a category five storm hitting the bay with the coastal spine intact, but without the Galveston Bay Park plan intact. And can you tell me a little bit about what that modeling looks like? Sure. A Category 5 storm coming in south of Galveston, you know, south of the Galveston Bay entrance channel with the coastal spine in place would generate about 22 to 24 foot of flooding up the ship, up the Houston ship channel, almost as bad as without, without any protection. I mean, a Category 5 without protection would probably be up around 27, 28 feet, something like that. So there's, four, there's five or six feet of relief, but it's still 22 to 24 feet of uh, surge coming up. And that's what we're just kind of you know horrified about is that even with the spine in place, there is a potential for a very large surge coming up the ship channel. What do your models tell you about how this storm would impact the region with both the Galveston Park Plan and the coastal spine in place? The water level rise is probably limited to five or six maybe 10 feet at max. So basically we reduce that damage. I won't tell you to zero. Uh, there likely would be localized flooding and we've still got rainfall and we've still got wind, which are worries. But from a hurricane surge standpoint, I would say the two together very nicely eliminate that risk for the most part. So that's one other possibility. Dr. Blackburn and his group have gotten funding from local government and private sources to continue to research this plan. But this process that the Houston-Galveston area is going through right now, deciding how to build to protect from storms and rising seas, other cities across the country are starting to ask these questions too. How much are they willing to pay for protection? How will they do it? I asked Dr. Morell about exactly that. I think you're going to see more and more of these uh, types of projects come in as sea level continues to arise and hurricanes become 
harder to, to deal with. They seem to, they're in, definitely intensifying faster, so it's harder to evacuate. That only leaves protection as your only option, if you think about it. Recovery's getting too expensive to be an option, so protection's gonna, gonna be the theme over the next years. Even though this whole saga seems incredibly long, from design in 2008 to the recent approval in the House and the Senate to the decades that remain before completion, Kia Collier actually says that in the scheme of things, she's really amazed at how quickly the tides have turned on the egg dike. Even like as recently as 2015, you know, 2016, you know, Bill Merrill and scientists at Rice felt like they were screaming into a void, you know. They had a lot of difficulty getting buy-in from state legislators. Bill Merrill was super frustrated for a long time and just felt like, you know, no one was listening to him. Throughout human history, it's like we've been very reactive. You know, it's, it's a lot easier to build political will and public support for something after something really terrible has happened. And they're saying something really terrible will happen in the future, you know, and that's that's kind of a hard sell, you know, historically. It's just a lot easier to say we need this because we've been, you know, flattened or, you know, whatever. And um, they've managed to build, you know, consensus and support um, despite that getting to authorization, you know, this quickly for this project um, is, like, quite stunning. I wondered if Dr. Merrill felt the same way. This is this is a um, maybe a trite question, but how have you kept forging ahead all these years knowing that, like, cost-effective protection would be a thousand-year storm, and yet you know, there's this battle to get to even a hundred-year storm. Like, how how do you hold those things together in your head? Like I kind of said before, if we get a hundred years, we can prevent a catastrophe. We may not be able to prevent a disaster, but we can prevent the really nasty situations where people are isolated for weeks and just terrible things happen. So we can prevent that with a lower level of protection. You don't need to protect against total damage. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's that keeps you going, and also uh, I'm just incredibly stubborn. <laughs> Everybody has told me that for some reason, but I, I am. And I thought, you know, I, I think uh, I think you've got to just if you believe in something, you need to, to um, continue to push that concept and not not let people uh, discourage you. Too much because it's a the concepts it take they 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 take time and they take uh, to kind of sink in and especially one this big this is a totally different thing for the United States it really is the world needs stubborn people I think so well I uh, I've most of the people I've admired in the world have been stubborn I have to say that <laughs> I've I've tried to model some of my stuff afterwards. <laughs> I really admire his tenacity. Well, thanks for bringing us this story, Alexandria. Fascinating stuff. Thank you. That's Alexandria Herr. She's a producer for the show. The Carbon Copy is a co-production of Postscript Media and Canary Media. This episode was written and produced by Alexandria Herr. And Bailey is our senior editor. Sean Marquand and Greg Vilfrank are engineers. And original music came from Echo Finch and Blue Dot Sessions. And our theme was written by Sean Marquand. 
Postscript Media is supported by Prelude Ventures, a venture capital firm that partners with entrepreneurs to address climate change across a range of sectors. That includes advanced energy, food and agriculture, transportation and logistics, advanced materials and manufacturing, and advanced computing. Give us a rating and review on Apple or Spotify if you like this story or any of the stories that we cover. And of course, share your thoughts on social media or send a link to a friend or colleague, anyone who you think would like this show. We'd love to have them here with us. I'm Stephen Lacey. This is The Carbon Copy.